Hi, I'm Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. My topic today is the power of identity and financial services, and it's my privilege to be speaking with Barbara Amin, who's with the office of the CTO at Ping Identity. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Barbara, as a result of technological innovation, customer expectations, and global regulations, how do you now see financial services evolving in new ways that impact our concept of identity? So, Tom, it's, it's actually a two-sided coin. Technology is not only impacting, you know, and, and allowing financial institutions to to offer new innovative products uh, where identity plays a key role, but also the concept of identity and security and having a having a good, strong, secure, open identity ecosystem itself, you know, it's helping the financial institutions, but in return, the financial institutions also can uh, monetize that and actually offer their support. For example, they can provide reputation services or identity services. One of the conversations I was having recently was how to prove you know, when you create a social login account, Twitter has this concept of trusted accounts, but that trusted account is only verified by ownership of email. That's not that much trust in there, right? So what if your financial institution could stand behind that and say, yes, I am going to say, Bank of America says, I know this is Barber, and I am going to attest to that. That would be a much stronger verification, not for anything else, but just to be able to attest to the identity of the person and that way they can have you know, further interactions with a completely different organizations. So that's one place where financial institutions can help the identity ecosystem. Where the identity ecosystem can help the financial institutions is you know, by having a more open identity ecosystem, there can be cross verification between the institutions. Um, different institutions might have different attributes or you know that that they can attest to that those attributes are associated with that institution. But as a composite identity that can be created at the end, that composite identity is a much stronger representation and a much stronger view of that person or of that thing or of that process or whatever the representation happens to be at that point. So if I could follow up, in this landscape you've described, how do we need to reevaluate the way we approach and secure the identity? Obviously, we all know that there are still firewalls, but that is no longer the predominant way of securing a perimeter, right? Because the perimeter doesn't just exist within walls anymore. The perimeter is wherever you are, right? We all carry around with us, or at least most of us, a computer that is, you know, much more powerful than what was used in the Apollo 13 mission. And, you know, but more memory, we in fact carry a whole cloud with us every time we, we walk out the door. So we, we can't basically just say it's one thing that is going to secure identities. It has to be a much more uh, layered approach, right? And that layered approach starts from the concept of initial verification, 
which is fundamental to the creation of the identity itself. So we talked a little bit about that, that I know your customer. Or, or being able to, uh, you know, at, the, at creation time, being able to verify who the person is and giving them, you know, access and granting them and creating that identity that is then used to, you know, offer more financial instruments or used in other places, right? That becomes kind of the basis. Once the initial vetting, initial verification is done, uh, there can be more friction there that can be more uh, cumbersome. And that's okay because that's more of a one-time event. Now, once you have proven who you are, um, that identity is then used during authentication, during accessing of services, or you know, or to prove yourself to other systems downstream. So that's where the second layer comes in, and that's you know, your access layer or your um, authentication layer. What happens in that case, or what are the layers, or what are the protections that that is that need to exist in that space are, are also very well known. This is all about making sure that any kind of a, any kind of an attack at that point is not going to be successful. So having multi-factor authentication or having having the ability to verify that Barbara is the one who is authenticating into the system or who's trying to access the resource is really Barbara. Right? That can be tied to um, my device, the device I am connecting with, um, that can be tied to my behavior, that can be tied to my location, that can be tied to you know the traditional uh, mechanisms for authentication, which is something you are, something you know, something you have. Those are all, I look at them as different layers and, and circles that uh, continue to grow bigger and bigger and provide more and more security as you start using that identity for multiple reasons. Now, with big data, with um, you know the large amount of processing power that we have nowadays, and with all the sensors and uh, information that can be captured around each individual, whether it's location, whether it's behavior, whether it's you know how I'm interacting, you know gesture analytics, how I'm interacting with the site, how I'm interacting with the device. The, the the large amount of sensors on my device, I'm holding the device. All of that information can now be used in uh, machine learning. It can be used as part of an underlying AI platform. It can be used to look at the behavior, whether whether that behavior is consistent with my you know, previous behavior, or is this is this an anomaly? Is this a bot? that behavior in terms of my relationships with the device or with the sites or with the location, uh, how is that consistent over time? And that gives even more uh, assurity that it is really me. So the probability of, um, you know, whether it's really Barber um, increases. At the same time, it reduces the friction that the organization is putting you know, every time I interact with them, they're not asking me to to go through six steps of authentication and uh, answer 20 questions every single time. Uh, they make it more um, more seamless for me. We hear a lot about friction. What do you find to be tolerable friction for customers as we try to find that balance between convenience and security? Tolerable friction really comes down to how much risk each party is willing to take. 
if the risk is shifted completely to the organization, they are going to obviously increase the type of verification they're going to require. If the risk is a shared risk between the individual and the organization, then they're both willing to make some compromises in terms of uh, reducing the friction because they're saying, look, I, I want some ease of use. Now that risk or the level of that risk, uh, even whether it's shared or whether it's borne only by one party, that risk is directly related to the type of resource being accessed or the type of transaction that is being executed. It's also directly proportional to the tolerance, right? So if somebody steals $10 from an account that has $100,000 in it, that's a different conversation. The risk associated with that is different than if somebody steals $10 from an account that has $50 in it. So the person and the institution, they're going to feel differently about both of those. So risk is that, that fine line. Now, another side to friction, this applies to the retail side, is how much friction you're introducing and whether that friction is going to alienate your customers because the customers have a lot more choice. So, you know, the amount of friction is also uh, related to how much choice the customers have. If the customers only have a choice of one or two or three places where they can uh, interact and get similar services or similar goods, then the amount of friction can be uh, increased because you are not as motivated to provide, a, I guess, a more seamless experience and the customer don't have as much choice. But in scenarios where the choice is pretty much unlimited, as we see nowadays, and it's really, really easy for customers to switch from A to B, then customer experience becomes more relevant. Now, the, the, the good part in all of this is that nowadays we have technology and we have the ability to provide high-risk services with very little friction because of the stuff we just talked about, that there can be a lot of analysis going on in the back end. The ownership of the device, the interaction of the person with the device, the behavior of that person, the past actions of that person, how are all of those things combining together to create a risk score? And then that risk score can be directly related to how much friction is going to be introduced in the process, right? So you could be fine to go and look at your itinerary, for example, with very little authentication or identification at a airline site. But when you want to change that or when you want to do, uh, you know, in-app purchases, for example, for Wi-Fi access or uh, um, other things that are tied with that same itinerary, now you require a little bit more verification. Barbara, what are some of the emerging technologies and solutions you see that will empower enterprise identity and access management? I would say that machine learning contacts are probably two of the of the bigger things that are going to basically change the landscape of enterprise IAM. Enterprise IAM has always been about standardized way of providing access control, about providing entitlement or granting entitlements, verifying users, 
each enterprise you know does their own identity proofing and creates an identity for that particular user but as we're now seeing the advantages that we can get from machine learning from context and from uh, you know processing of large amounts of data and behavior that can change the enterprise IAM landscape because now people can interact with systems without having to go through the same set of, um, I guess, friction that they that they used to. Because remember that enterprise enterprise employees, especially, are what I call in a captive audience. Right? They don't have the choice. Uh, if I work for company A, I work for company A, and I have to follow company A's processes and procedures. Um, I can't switch to company B and say, you know what, I'm going to all of a sudden get some services from company B. I can do that as a retail customer, but not as an enterprise employee. Enterprise IAM has always been lagging behind in that space from the retail and from the, uh, you know, the broader commercial industry. Um, so uh, machine learning, uh, more AI, context, all of those go towards uh, providing better multi-factor authentication so that uh, you're only asking for um, you know the the additional factors or even any factors um, if the risk score is above a certain limit right um, having just-in-time access so another concept that uh, you know from an access point of view is that you're granted access based on your roles you know maybe based on your cohorts or based on your job description um, and that's the that's the access that you have, those the entitlements that you have. And people would certify those entitlements saying, yes, you still require access there. But what if what if you could do just in time access? What if you actually had no access to anything, but you only are proving that who you are, and that can be also based on your device, your location, your behavior, your uh, you know, authentication that you've already performed. And now that when you're trying to access a resource, you're granted just-in-time access to that resource based on the context of the request. So if you're trying to access Salesforce, you'll be granted access to Salesforce because you need to look at a certain certain opportunity, for example, or a certain piece of information. And how you, you know, the leading up to that, um, what you were doing before that, you know, maybe that was a link that you got from an email. Maybe that was a link that actually came from a IM chat. Maybe that was a question that somebody asked you, and the system is looking as to what is going on. What are the different actions that are preceding that event, and and uh, do those actions actually get you to that event? And that's why you were into that event, or uh, you know, uh, or did you basically just initiate it without any kind of precursor? in which case you might be asked for a little bit more information. So context becomes really, really important. Barbara, let's bring it back to ping identity. What are you doing to drive the change in how we secure identity? Ping is actually doing a bunch of the stuff we just talked about. Uh, we're um, Obviously, we have uh, you know an underlying um, IAM portfolio, um, which allows us to have secured identities, um, which also, you know, we, we follow open standards. So these are secured open identity ecosystem that we, we help create. We also service, you know, some of the largest organizations in the world. So our systems are very 
it's very flexible and they, they can handle massive scale and they can handle massive performance requirements. Now, where we're doing a lot of research right now and, um, and, and prototyping is around machine learning, is around context. Our multi-factor authentication offering already has a static con- context um, that it, uh, you know, static proof and, and static context that it evaluates to, to decide whether, uh, you know, what the risk score is and to decide what to do whether to step up or whether to step down or whether to let things move forward. What we're focusing on is to make that more AI and machine learning based so that context that we talked about earlier becomes more important in terms of all access and um, all authentication and uh, anytime you know, we're going to uh, allow the system to interact with the user, going back to reducing the friction yet increasing the security of the overall system. We're also looking at aspects of uh, consent and uh, making sure that we provide tools to organizations to empower their users and give give control back to the end user, whether that end user is an employee, whether that end user is a customer, whether the end user is a business partner, or you know what, whatever relationship they have with that end user, allowing and empowering their end users to manage how the flow of information is going to happen between um, you know the information they own between the information that the organization owns and between the information say a third party or a partner might own and then lastly we're also looking at uh, you know how identity and distributed ledger technologies how can they interact and play and consent is you know one of the one of the interesting aspects there Identity proofing is another interesting aspect there where a distributed ledger uh, type technology can uh, can help from an identity proofing perspective because you can have distributed attributes with uh, different organizational ownerships. Barbara, one last question for you. Can you offer some examples of what your customers in financial services specifically are doing to be at once more convenient, more agile, and more secure? Yes. Financial services is one of our strongest verticals. We service some of the largest financial institutions. One of the things we're involved with from the very start is this concept of open banking. Uh, open banking is uh, UK's version of PSD2, which is uh, Europe's uh, payment services directive you know, uh, version two. At a very basic level, open banking is about open business. It's about API security. It's about opening up um, your APIs in a manner that is secure, that allows for your business partners to interact with your systems, and also allows consent-based payments and consent-based information processing and information exchange. So an example of uh, innovative way of how that can be used is uh, which, which you know, some of our customers, especially in Europe, are uh, looking at this right now. One example is having a loan that only lasts for 24 hours, an automated loan, right? An automated payday loan that is granted and paid back uh, in the background because the system knows um, that you've already given consent to the system to look at you know, your transaction history. And the system knows that you're gonna be short between you know for the next 12 hours 
and it automatically issues extra um, cover to cover that 12 hours, and then that gets taken away. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go, you know, you don't have to forget it. it, it everything is happening automatically in the back end. And when you decide that you do not want the system to have, um, you know, the, the loan system to have uh, access, you can revoke that consent, right? So fully, fully in control of the user, but at the same time allows the, um, the financial institution and the loan institution to offer an innovative service that is not going to be possible without having this underlying open API system in place. So just, just an example. Well, very good, Barbara. I appreciate your time and insight today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. The topic has been the power of identity and financial services. And I've been speaking with Barbara Amin from the office of the CTO at Ping Identity. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.